We're going to be in Exodus 20 tonight. Particularly verses 13 through 17. We're going to be looking at the last uh, five commandments, uh, 6 through 10. Let's pray again. Lord, covering all of the commandments in just a few weeks' time seems um, seems rushed. And I, I confess tonight that as we're looking at commandments 6 through 10 and how we live in relation to e- each other, um, I don't want to do a disservice to this passage, but realistically we could spend weeks on each commandment really looking at all that you are showing us about yourself and all that you are showing us about ourselves and all you are showing us about our great need for a Savior. And so tonight, I pray by the work of the Holy Spirit that you would give clarity to the things that need clarity. Um, you know the conditions of the hearts of your children who sit in this room at this time. Um, I do not. And so as I teach through these things and as we engage the Scripture and are engaged by the Scripture, uh, my prayer is that the Holy Spirit would move accordingly uh, to your plan, um, that we would have insights and understandings uh, into the many different parts of the Scripture that you see fitting for, for right now. Um, I'm thankful that we have a word from you, that we have this breathed out word um, that is profitable for everything we need to, to truly be fruitful in our lives. And uh, I pray that we would Rather than feeling rushed and being dis- discouraged by that at all, I, my prayer is that we would really be thankful that we have a word from you that no matter how, how deep we, we dig into it, it just seems to always go deeper and, and we can't really plumb the depths of it. Plumbing the depths of it is an impossibility uh, for the created. So we humble ourselves before you tonight and we just ask that this would be a time where you warn us, you inform us, you encourage us uh, by your word uh, so that we might grow uh, into Christ's likeness uh, and put your glory on display in, in every area of our lives. We love you, Lord, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. What do the law and grace have to do with each other? What do the law and grace have to do with each other. If it wasn't for the law, we wouldn't know what grace was. Yep, the law shows us our need of grace. Did grace come after the law? No. Yeah, the grace that saves precedes the law that demands. Grace leads us to the law, not away from it. That's something that we have to make sure we keep in proper perspective or we'll see the Old Testament and the the laws and the things that God reveals to us about the way we're supposed to live. We can see them as void of grace and then find ourselves wrongly thankful that, oh, we live in a time where 
There is no expectation, and it's just grace. That, that's, that's quite off balance. And so God definitely has expectation on the lives of his believers. And uh, grace had, uh, there was much grace in the law. In fact, grace led us to the law because the law is the means by which we understand how to live according to our new freedom. Um, what two relationships are addressed in the commandments? Yeah, our relationship to God and our relationship with other people. And so tonight we're going to be looking particularly at the way God says that we should live in response to each other um, as an act of worship to Him. Um, we're going to finish up our brief study of the commandments tonight. And as we do so, I, I say it's brief just because what I, what I voiced in my prayer. We, we could spend weeks on each of these and, and look at them and compare them to the Sermon on the Mount and other areas where God's really getting to the heart of, of sinners and how they can repent from that sin and follow Him. And we, we could just really spend a lot of time in this. And in fact, when in 2003, for the first however many weeks, been preached on just one commandment uh, per week. And so that was how this church actually started. Its, its uh, ministry was in that, uh, in that teaching and preaching. But as we finish this tonight, I want us to remember that God's aim is not simply to change our actions. It's really important. His aim isn't just to change our actions, although our actions are very important. His aim is to change us from the heart outward. So if you are in any form of spiritual leadership, and when I say spiritual leadership, I'm talking about if you're a parent, if you're a spouse, if you're a small group shepherd, if you are friends with someone and you are further along in your faith, or you have faith and they are not of the faith, if you're in any area, any form of spiritual leadership, it's important to remember that um, your aim is not to try to just get people to act different, but you, in fact, hope people will be different because of the transforming power of God. And so, if you're leading out spiritually in any way, that's important to understand and remember that we're not just trying to get people to act different, and we ourselves are not just trying to act differently, but to in fact be different because of uh, the power of God. Before we look particularly at the text, I want you to turn to Psalm 119. Psalm 119, verse 129. We're going to look at verse 129 through 136. Psalm 119, verse 129 through 136, like the longest address ever. All triple digits. And it says this, starting in verse 129. Your testimonies are wonderful. Therefore, my soul keeps them. The unfolding of your words give, gives light and it imparts understanding to the simple. I open my mouth and I pant because I long for your commandments. Turn to me and be gracious to me. You see the connection with grace and commandments there. Turn to me and be gracious to me, as is your way with those who love your name. Keep steady my steps according to your promise, and let no iniquity get dominion over me. Redeem me from man's oppression that I may keep your precepts. Make your face shine upon your servant and teach me your statutes. And listen to this. My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. And I would ask just as we talk about these final commandments about how we are to 
treat each other and walk with each other according to God's purposes, do you mourn over such things as the psalmist mourns over? I mean, as I read those words, I was in my office today looking at that, my eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. I would ask, is obedience so important to you that you not only watch it in your own life, but also in the lives of others who are brothers and sisters in Christ? Do you care that people walk according to the principles that God puts forth to such a degree that, like the psalmist, you could shed tears when it's not happening, and that you pray and you long for God giving you the power to walk according to his precepts and his commandments? My hope is that these verses out of Psalm 119 can rightly ready us to consider the commandments which, which, which address our relationships with others. So turn back to Exodus 20, verse 13. Thou shalt not murder. So can we just go home now? Are we good? Y'all good? You got that? Don't murder. We all agree that's bad. Um, uh, It would be real easy to move on from that quickly, but we're not going to because I think that may seem easy enough at first, but we're going to need to turn to Matthew 5 to take in the full scope of what is expected of God's people. So we're going to be doing a lot of turning tonight from Exodus 20 to Matthew 5, so just kind of keep your finger in both uh, pieces of text. Matthew 5 is the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus particularly addresses things that have been addressed previously in the commandments in the Old Testament. And as you turn, just, you shall not murder. Um, What does this simple commandment reveal about God? Life is precious, absolutely. What else does it reveal about God? He's a just God. We could say he believes life is precious. He believes in justice. And how does that impact you according to the commandment? You don't have the right to take someone else's life. You did not give that life. The giver of life says, I treat that as precious. So you function accordingly. And so what we're doing there is we're reflecting God's character. Um, He values human life. He is the creator who wants his created to function according to his purposes. When image bearers murder, they do not rightly represent the God in whose image they have been created. So if you're an image bearer of God and you're in Christ and you murder, you are not rightly representing who your God is and his character that he wants to be seen in your character as others are watching your life. Um, Matthew 5.21 says this. Uh, It says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Now, before we move on to the next verses, I want to make it real clear that Jesus is not correcting the commandment here. Jesus is not correcting the commandment, thou shalt not murder. Um, He is not adding anything to the commandment. Jesus is not adding to the commandment here. When he says, you have heard, he's referring to the mistaken notion that you are fulfilling the commandment by not murdering. Jesus is getting to a deeper issue here where he's saying, just because you're not murdering does not mean you're necessarily fulfilling this commandment. Remember, all the promises of God find their yes in Christ, and he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And so what we're going to see here is that um, Christ wants us to see what it really means for God's people 
what this commandment really means for God's people. And it's not enough not to murder. So look at verses 21 through 26. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, as I read this, let it challenge you. Like where you're at, consider your relationships. Consider the way you interact with other people. Consider people at work. Consider your family members. Consider your friends. Consider your enemies as I read this. I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there, remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you'll never get out until you, uh, repaid, you have paid the last penny. Um, anger is a very real problem for many people. It's easy to say, well, murder's not a real problem. I mean, we're all Christians. We're all sitting here. Murder's not that big of a deal, so don't murder. Move on, Scott. We have other things to talk about. But anger is a huge problem. We, I mean, if at the end of the day, it's been a hard day, at that point, we could be just more prone to anger very easily. And what God is saying is, see that as murderous. Because it's not good. It's not okay for you to just live in that manner. Anger is a very real problem for many, and Christians are not meant to sit on their anger and allow it to fester. There's some other verses that help to round this out for us, and you can turn there if you can turn quickly. Um, If you turn over to Proverbs 14 or just listen, there's a handful of verses out of Proverbs that, again, we could spend weeks talking about anger. However, we're going to look at a few Proverbs that help shed light on um, the pitfalls of anger. Proverbs 14.29 says, Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding. Okay. Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding. So what does it mean if you're quick to anger? You have little understanding. You lack understanding. Or at the very least, you do not have great understanding. Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding. But he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. How does that play out? How does a hasty temper exalt folly? What does it mean to have a hasty temper? Reacting and not responding. That's really good. Say that again. Short fuse. Reacting, not responding. Short fuse. That, that's ways we could describe what it means to be uh, hasty and have a hasty temper. And so how does that exalt folly? What's another word for folly? Foolishness. Stupid. Okay. So to respond in a way um, that is uh, where you are ha- have hasty temper, it exalts stupidity and foolishness. Is stu- are stupidity and foolishness good for the upbuilding of the body? <laughs> no. So your anger problems that you may have um, are not healthy, and they in fact very much have an impact on the body. We don't want to exalt folly. We're here to speak truth, so anger can get in the way of speaking truth. Proverbs 15 verse 1 says, and for you parents, this is a, many of you have this probably hanging in your kitchen and the living room and the bedroom and the bathroom. 
A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. A harsh, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. What would be the source of a harsh word? Anger, yes. And so anger displayed in a harsh word is going to stir up what? Anger. We shouldn't, we shouldn't have a desire to stir up anger in other people. Some people have almost a gift for stirring up anger in other people. And you might think, I know who he's talking about. I, 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 like, it is, th- there are some relationships where you, bam, 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 you can stir up anger quick, but a harsh word stirs up anger. So if you're about to say something, Ephesians says, um, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. The wor- like as the words are about to come out of your mouth and something where maybe you're feeling angry, is this a harsh word or is this going to give grace to those who hear? Is this going to build up or is this not going to build up? Because I'm going to let no corrupting talk. Is this corrupting? If it's harsh, it's in fact corrupting. So Proverbs 15:18 says, A hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention. Why don't we like contention? Do you like contention? No, why not? It's the opposite of peace. Yeah, that's a huge point. Contention is the opposite of peace, so what makes it so unsavory? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, the, the, the contention is unsavory because it needs to be quieted. And what is it that quiets contention according to this verse? When we're slow to anger. Now, what's the difference between being slow to anger and just never angry? Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes there's a need for anger. I mean, what are, what are some other scriptures? You don't have to necessarily cite the reference, but where do we see anger that's okay? Yeah, holy anger. When Jesus is angry, it says be angry and do not sin. So that says that there is a way to be angry and it is not sinful. But even in that anger, don't be quick to anger. See, there's a sobriety of mind that plays into this where a hot-tempered man stirs up strife. Hot-tempered is not sober. It's reactive. It's quick. But he who is slow to anger quiets contention. And that's a blessing. If you've ever been in a circumstance where there's lots of contention, I mean, there are television shows that contention is what they thrive on because it's just this constant stress and strain, and it's like a car wreck, and I can't turn it off, but I don't want to watch it, and it's hard. Man, quieting that contention is beautiful. And one who is slow to anger quiets that contention. It doesn't say one who is never angry. It says be slow to anger, which is a lot like quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Proverbs 16.32 says, Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. Do you have enough control over your spirit to quietly, sober-mindedly address things, even when it may be very angry? Proverbs 19.11 says, Good sense, good sense makes one slow to anger. 
and it is his glory to overlook an offense. Are you okay with ever overlooking an offense? Like some of us may be sitting there saying, I will never overlook an offense. I will make sure every offense does not get overlooked. Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. That may be a display of grace and mercy. Maybe in the words you use, you're communicating grace to someone. I'm not saying let someone keep on sinning. That's not at all what I'm saying. But if just because maybe it's not their sin that stirs you up to anger. And that's why you need to be careful with that. Look at verse 14 in Exodus 20. Again, we could talk about that all night, but we're not going to. I'm not going to talk about this all night either. Verse 14. You shall not commit adultery. What does God reveal about his purposes and plans in this commandment? You shall not commit adultery. Purity. God is pro-purity. What else does he reveal about his purposes and plans in do not commit adultery? Marriage is absolutely sacred. And why? He created it. And why did he create it? Yeah, yeah, we should rightly respect the sanctity of marriage because marriage was not our idea. Marriage was not our idea. There are so many people that I have done premarital counseling and didn't get to marry them because they didn't realize marriage wasn't their idea. Because what they were doing was they're saying, this is what we want, this is what we don't want, this is what we want, this is what we don't want. And this little thing here was just tossed by the wayside because it's like, well, we decided we want to get married, so we're going to decide the terms by which we're married. Marriage wasn't our idea. It was God's idea. And it's not ours to approach however we feel. So my question is, is it a fulfillment of the commandment to simply refrain from adultery? No. And why? Turn to Matthew five twenty-seven. Matthew 5.27 says, uh, we're going to read through verse 30. You have heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better you lose one of your members, then your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. For you men, if you hear that and you think, that's a little extreme, isn't it? Um, that's, that's Jesus. Jesus Christ, King of kings, Lord of lords, in infinite wisdom, is addressing this in this manner. Ben has referred to this. He circle-seed it, so I have to give him his props. But uh, he's beautifully referred to this as an eye-gouging, arm-hacking pursuit of holiness. What's being referred to here is an eye-gouging, arm-hacking pursuit of holiness. It sounds violent, doesn't it? But appropriately. Eye-gouging, arm-hacking pursuit of holiness. A.W. Pink says, The marriage relationship is paramount over every other human obligation. It is the highest and most sacred of human relations. He goes on to say that unfaithfulness is, li- is not limited to the overt act 
but reaches to the passions behind the act. This is referring to unfaithfulness. This is referring to um, what you hear as adultery and then lust. And I would say that what's being addressed here by Christ, being addressed here by Christ is um, something that happens even before an act or in place of an act of infidelity. So there's a seriousness about this that should sober you up very quickly. Um, women are not exempt from lust, in case you're sitting there thinking, well, thankful it didn't address us. Women are not exempt um, from lust. Um, however, uh, by Christ's address, um, we can see that men are, le- men are especially susceptible to this. The problem, however, is not one's susceptibility to such sin, but the heart behind it. That's what Christ is getting to, the heart behind this sin. Pornography is a multi-billion dollar industry because millions of men, some Christian men, are under the false pretense that it is okay to look but not touch. That's what this is speaking to. That's not okay. That's a lie. And revisiting these commandments and how they are fulfilled in Christ should cause repentance and a pursuit of holiness that springs from a heart of worship. My hope is that as we look at each of these commandments, you don't just say, yeah, okay, yeah, I agree. But that this would be convicting. And that where conviction happens, my prayer is that conviction runs its course. Because if conviction runs its course, and you hear the word, and you say, I need to repent. When conviction runs its course, it leads to repentance. And repentance leads to holiness and purity, which is glorifying and honoring to God. Motyer, one of a... Uh, a commentator that I read uh, from Exodus, he, he says, marital infidelity involves going back on one's pledged word. When, when you sit at the, at the altar, you stand at the altar together and you are married, you're pledging things to, to one another. You, you are saying, this is my word and we are entering into a covenant together. And he makes a really good point that marital infidelity involves going back on one's pledged word and therefore is a departure from the image of God. You are image bearers of God. God never goes back on his word. Infidelity is going back on your pledged word and therefore does not rightly represent the God in whose image you are to bear according to his created purposes. Verse 15 in Exodus 20. You shall not steal. What does God reveal about his purposes and plans in this commandment? Honest, trustworthy. What else does God reveal? Say that again? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Recognize God's provision. Be honest. Be trustworthy. Don't frown upon God's provision by taking something that's not yours just because you want it. Um, this is... It, we, I think we have a thinking. I think we have a thinking. Sure. I think we have a thinking that is almost like children. This is more like children have a problem with this and not adults so much. The problem with that is it, is it minimizes the reality of, of this possibility that God sees as important to address. And I don't know. I think there's a challenge in this that if you watch your kids take from each other all day and steal from each other and just don't ever do anything about it, 
that's going to promote something bad that will certainly not be fruitful in their adult life. And so I think there's a challenge here. Because, I mean, I, I watch Ella and Olivia. She took this. She took that. I mean, it's like all day, every day. And you can become so numb to it that you don't ever address it. But it's like, is that yours? Why did you take it? Oh, you took it just because you wanted it. Okay, well, that, maybe that's stealing. <laughs> and we got to talk about that because God's not for that. Uh, this happened with Ella one time with... Uh, Went to Build-A-Bear and came home broke. That's what you do at Build-A-Bear. And uh, we got back and Ella had taken Olivia's bear and she had finagled and convinced Olivia that this old thing over here was better and the brand new one Ella took. And, and I got, to, I talked to her about it. I said, you can't do that. And she's like, but she said it was okay. I said, it's because you coerced her and you were, you were sneaky and, and, and not truthful and we're truth speakers. And why did you do that? And it got to the heart of, I mean, she was dealing with covetousness and worrying about what people thought about her. She said her friends are going to like Olivia's bear more than hers, and she doesn't want that to happen. And I mean, as we talked about it, I was like, good night. My five-year-old is really struggling with some heart issues here. And we talked about it, and we prayed about it. But that was one instance. I mean, there's a lot of times where we have those opportunities and maybe we pass them up. So just take it as an encouragement don't, not, not to pass those up. God is for justice. He is for a community and a way of life that respects the life and even the belongings of other people. That's God, God's giving in, in Exodus. He's saying, that Israel, a community that is to put on display my glory you are to be a community that is, that is about justice, that is respectful of the life of another person, and even respectful of, of the belongings of another person. So not only are we not supposed to steal from others, but how are we to be in regards to our belongings? Hold them lightly. Give them away. That's what we're all thinking about this time of year, isn't it? Turn, turn over to Matthew 5.42. You may think about those things that you think you can't live without. and Maybe that's the very thing that you need to be convicted about. Maybe, I don't know. Um, but Matthew 5.42 uh, says, um, Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Okay, that's beautiful, right? Let's put that into play. Beggar guy comes up to you asking for something. How does that play out? I mean... I'm not saying every beggar should get exactly what they ask for. That probably wouldn't pan out real good, real well, real appropriately. However, I mean, when someone asks for something, or maybe it's, just, maybe it's not a beggar, maybe it's someone you know who's in need, is your inclination to say, okay, let me pray and let me ask that God would give me discernment so I can figure out a way to provide for this person should it be needed, or figure out another solution or direction? Is that your inclination? Or is your inclination, I'm annoyed. This is annoying. Leave me alone. Because there's a lot of Christians that give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse to the one who, who would borrow from you. There's probably a lot of Christians who, 
who would say, ah, it's so annoying. I'm so tired of being asked for things or people wanting something from me, my time or my resources or whatever. And I just, my hope is that if we're presented with an opportunity to bless someone, that we would have an inclination that says, Lord, give me, give me insight on if this is good, if this is an opportunity I should, I should make the most of, show me how to do this wisely. It's not always the best move to just give someone a big wad of cash and say, be blessed. Um, help people to be good stewards. God cares about good stewardship. Um, but this is one of those where we can just check our heart. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse from the one who would borrow from you. Um, one of the things that I've thoroughly been blessed by and witnessed many others who were blessed by is a community of faith at Cross Point since 2003 when I moved here that is big-hearted and open-handed. That's the, I think Brad was the first one who used that phrase, big-hearted and open-handed, where I see it all over the place, people bending over backwards to help people. Um, uh, that is something to be enjoyed, see it as a blessing, and praise God for it. Uh, don't be a freeloader, but praise God for it. Um, big-hearted and open-handed. Uh, look at Exodus 20, verse 16. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Now, what does God reveal about his purposes and plans in this commandment? You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Say that again. This keeps coming up and valuing the truth so much. What else does it reveal? Yeah, relationships are important. Be careful how you speak. Yeah. Yeah. Harmony with each other peacefully is a good thing. Um, why does God not like it when the truth is suppressed? It leads to bondage. Yeah, he can't lie. Um, he, he does not and cannot lie. So the truth is important because if you suppress the truth, you're, you're, you're suppressing something about God that people need to know. And you can do that in the way you communicate about others. Um, Romans 1.18, I say it a lot, that the wrath of God is towards unrighteousness because unrighteousness suppresses the truth. Because God can't suppress the truth. So because he's perfectly just, his wrath is directed um, towards the thing that is suppressing the truth, which is unrighteousness. Um, the ESV Study Bible lists some really great Proverbs to take a look at for more understanding. Uh, turn over to Proverbs 6. These, these verses show how bearing false witness is damaging, divisive, and misrepresentative of the character of God. Proverbs 6 is going to be the first one we'll look at. And this is, well, we'll read these first. Proverbs 6, verses 16 through 19. There are six things that the Lord hates and seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies and one who sows discord among brothers. Look at Proverbs 12, 22, just a few pages over. 12, 22 says, Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, 
but those who act faithfully are his delight. So there's an indicator there that if you are lying and you are misrepresenting, that is not faithful movement. And look at 19.5 and then 19.9. In case you didn't get it the first time, it says in 19.5, a false witness will not go unpunished. And he who breathes out lies will not escape. And then in 9, in case you missed it, a false witness will not go unpunished. And he who breathes out lies will perish. Again, this is a pretty common and easy thing to take part in. Think about how common and easy it is. How many times per day do you hear one person talking bad about another person? Let's just start at home. In your household, how often do you hear someone talk bad about another person? Now consider your workplace. Consider your friendships. It's a pretty common thing, and it's really easy to take part in because it's all around us. Most of our media makes a living by doing such things. What's the bad thing I can say about that person? And then put it in the news and call it news. Most of the news is not actually news. Just for the record, it's not. I was watching something. I was watching a show the other night. I wasn't watching it. It was on. I wasn't watching it. It was just on. And the news was that someone was almost at the same place of another person at the same time. Almost. It almost happened. It didn't happen. But had they been at the same place, they, they have differences with each other. These two, they got beef. And so this person who has beef with this person, they were like minutes away from being at the same place. And the story went on from there. There was more story because had they been in the same place, this is what would have happened. This person probably would have said this, and this person probably would have said this. And it was like two minutes of false witness. Like, it didn't even happen, yet somehow you're calling it news. So, the media makes a living by doing such things. Lawyers can make a living by clearing up such discrepancies. Um, and God's people are not to be untrue about the character or the actions of another person ever. God's people are not to be untrue about the character or the actions of other people ever. This is not just make sure you tell the truth about your Christian brothers and sisters. This is make sure you tell the truth about everybody. Don't misrepresent anybody. Bearing false witness is a bad thing because it suppresses the truth about who your God is. He is completely true. So don't ever be untrue, especially in regards to other people. Look at Exodus 20 verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now, this is a little different. What does God reveal about his purposes and plans in this commandment? Contentment? What about contentment? Were you all going to say the same thing? Okay. It's interesting that it's your neighbor. It's funny how you can be so covetous of just them because they're right there. Like, like it, 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 it's who you can see. Like, it's not particularly what they have. It's just that I can see what they have. 
Like it's, it's, it shows the shallowness that, that we can be prone to. Um, I really think that this you shall not covet shows just the really broad possibilities about falling into such a sin because it begins to name specifics so as to show you how nonspecific coveting can be. Um, uh, interestingly, this does not always have an outward expression. Coveting doesn't always have an outward expression. You could be the most covetous person ever, and maybe you hide it really well, and no one knows. It doesn't always have this outward expression. You don't always go steal your neighbor's car, or egg it, or whatever. I don't know why that's the first thing that came to mind. That's weird. Um, I don't even like my neighbor's car, just so you know. Um, and I would never throw eggs at it. Interestingly, um, uh, this also, it doesn't just prohibit the outward act. What God is showing is that there's a prohibiting of the desire to act in coveting. It's a prohibiting of the desire to act, not even an act itself. It's something that is happening in your heart. The ESV again has an insightful note that coveting can become the motivation for breaking other commandments. How can coveting become the motivation for breaking other commandments? Yeah, I will steal that. When you find something that leads to breaking other commandments, it's good to repent and just to turn from it. And don't dabble in it. Don't, don't pers- persevere in it anymore. It can lead to murder. It can lead to stealing. It can lead to more coveting. It's interesting. Ephesians, you don't have to turn there, but you might write it in your notes. Ephesians 5.5 5 and Colossians 3.5 both refer to coveting as idolatry. Both those verses refer to coveting as idolatry. And idolatry is breaking the first commandment. How, how could coveting be idolatry? How does that play out? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's like it becomes almost all you can see. There's a really simple song that says, anything I want more than God is an idol. Anything I think about more than God is an idol. And it just goes on to, it's like, okay, idolatry right in my face. And it's... Um, coveting is idolatry. Uh, turn over to Luke 12. Luke 12. We're going to look at verses 13 through 21. Parable of the rich fool. Look at verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, they're talking to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now, real quick, does that sound like horrible? If you had a sibling and there was an inheritance, I mean, would you maybe say, yeah, divide that with me? Maybe. I don't know if you've ever had to work through inheritance stuff, but it it can cause some serious division. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, (laughs) who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. Now, Jesus is taking this to a level that we really need to see. Don't just do not covet. Take care. Be on guard against it because you're going to be tempted in that direction. Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. All covetousness, large and small. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, 
the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this, might, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Covetousness robs you of the true joy that only exists in Christ. Covetousness is a, it doesn't, it's not a fulfilling thing. That's the lie we believe when we fall into it. If I think about it enough, maybe I'll have it. And that's a, there's a lie there. That the covetousness robs you of the true joy that only exists in Christ. This time of year is filled with opportunities to strongly desire things that are not yours. It doesn't necessarily even have to belong to someone else for you to covet it. It might just be on the shelf or in the ad, which are conveniently delivered to your house every day in multiple ways. Fight against it as a family, knowing that your life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. Colossians 3, 2 exhorts us to set your minds on the things that are above and not on the things that are on earth. During the Christmas season, this mindset and perspective is one that I would consider beautifully unique and true to the character of God. And we may not have a time of year more poised and set and ready and right to put God's glory on display in, in, in such a manner as to not get wrapped up in covetousness and worldliness. In closing, turn over to Matthew 22. This is how we'll close looking at the commandments. Matthew 22, verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he, Jesus, had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. I'm kidding. I know some of y'all are lawyers. I'm kidding. Um, asked him a question to test him. And verse 36 says, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. The most loving thing that we can do toward God and toward everyone else is obey God faithfully. Like this isn't just a list of rules in which we can maybe find that we can please God in some manner or another. This is the most loving thing we can do toward God and to other people. Um, God's design is that we exist in community. We walk in community. He has purposes in our attitudes, the words we use, the responses that we give. And all of it is extremely loving if we are being obedient. And what we'll find is that when we drift from obedience and we drift away from doing what God has commanded, we will inevitably, by his design, come across and actually be unloving to each other and unloving to him. 
And he's deserving of all of our love. He's deserving of more than we can give. So the hope in going through these commandments, even though it's going through them fairly quickly, is to see that it is very, very loving to obey God. It's loving to him, and it's loving to everyone that you can see in this room, everyone you walk with daily. It's a very loving thing. So let's pray. Lord, I am thankful for our time uh, tonight. I pray that you would allow us to, to walk in this truth and to understand it uh, so that we might walk in it. I pray for good conversations uh, to come from our time, uh, conversations in which um, we sharpen each other and we encourage each other and uh, we spur one another forward in good works and in faithfulness. Uh, Lord, you are great and greatly to be praised and your greatness is unsearchable. And to be able to have Wednesday nights to, to search out your greatness and to see parts of it that um, we would not be able to see without the work of the Spirit is a sweet, sweet privilege. Uh, we count it a, a blessing to be called yours and I pray that we would walk accordingly. We love you and we thank you for Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.